according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in your scriptures. I don't know how you're going to do this. You're going to turn to Matthew, Mark, and Luke simultaneously. Our uh, episode today, episode 33, is contained in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15, as well as Mark 10, verses 13 through 16, and Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. And we'll be doing quite a bit of bouncing back and forth uh, in the process of this. There's uh, seven points of study I want to take out of this episode and uh, it's interesting, it's recorded by all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and yet there are particular details that are unique to, uh, to different accounts. Uh, and uh, so we're going to glean everything we can out of every record and um, obtain what we can uh, in a maximum way out of this particular episode. best part is, is that we won't have to deal with any... Um, castration or eunuch type uh, stuff like we were dealing with last week and uh, we even had visitors last week I was feeling a little awkward but that's all right we have uh, good stuff this time children little kids what can be wrong with that you love that stuff Jesus uh, the disciples weren't too hot on these kids tagging along but Christ uh, got angry and chewed them out and and uh, made the priorities the priorities, and that's what we want to understand here today. So before we begin, I guess let's use Matthew as a starting point because uh, it's the shortest, and then we'll probably linger in uh, Mark, I would suspect, for the bulk of our class today. Before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do acknowledge your glory today as we come before you, thankful and unworthy. Uh, Father, we just ask for your continued blessings, for the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth. Bless our study today, Father. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Episode 33 in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. It's titled, Jesus Blesses Children. The short version is the Gospel of Matthew account. Some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. All right, short story, right? We can knock this out in five minutes. Uh, They were bringing kids. Disciples didn't like it. Jesus said, uh, Tough, get used to it. And... uh, There they go. All right. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he uh, took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. A little bit more vivid in the detail there. Luke 18. Mark, of course, presents quite often the gospel record is from the standpoint of a servant. And uh, an episode like this catches his attention with some of the servant-minded details. Luke Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. All right, so that's... uh, Longer than Matthew's record, shorter than Mark's. So like I said, I think we're going to spend the bulk of our time in, uh, in Mark chapter 10. But don't be surprised if we do some flipping back and forth. All right. This, by the way, is why the Logos Bible software is a wonderful feature for <laughs> doing studies like this. And uh, I even crafted a, a glorious uh, workspace, desktop workspace called Synoptic 
Gospels where Matthew, Mark, and Luke are across the top and the Greek text is underneath in linked windows and then uh, other things off to the side. It's truly a, a wonderful way to look at things. Anyway, I'm not a salesman. I'm not drawing a commission if you buy their product, but it is worthwhile in, uh, in assisting your studies. All right. First of all, this is what it's about. Children, point one. Children, even babies, were brought for hands-on prayer blessings. They were brought to Jesus for hands-on prayer blessings. Children, even babies, were brought to Jesus for hands-on prayer blessings. That's what this episode's about. Uh, so you can list that if you like as point one in your outline. They're called children in the Matthew and Mark records. They're called babies in Luke 18, uh, vocabulary, pideon, and uh, brephos is the term for the infants, the newborns, that, uh, that Luke references. And they were brought for prayer. Now, this, this passage gets taught in a lot of ways, and it's, I guess it's a popular passage, and it preaches maybe, but uh, they, it gets preached in, in evangelism context, applications for coming to Jesus. And, and we'll, we'll comment on that. Uh, because it is a come to Jesus context, but it's not a come to Jesus for salvation context. These children are getting saved. All right. They're coming for blessing. And we want to understand the process there. And it's only on a secondary basis that I think we can view it as a coming to Jesus application or being brought to Jesus application. Um, and, and hopefully I'll spell that out here effectively shortly. But what are these blessings about? What does it mean to bless? This comes back to an Old Testament practice, the aspect of blessing as opposed to cursing. What do we do when we bless one another? What do we do when we offer a blessing? Uh, we've uh, commented upon this in times past. You and I don't have sovereignty to produce any blessing whatsoever, but we do have uh, the uh, invitation at the Father's throne of grace where we can go to in prayer. And any blessings we offer are, in fact, prayer requests. Uh, we may not verbalize them as prayer requests, but when we say bless you or God bless you, what are we really saying? We are invoking the name of the Lord. We're invoking God's name to, to, for God himself to supply the blessings in a person or in a marriage or in a family or in a, in a home uh, for children and their upbringing, for example. This is something we've got scheduled for uh, opening Sunday in the new building. Uh, was brought to my attention that we uh, have been rather negligent for, <clears throat> I don't want to say how many years, uh, in our non, uh, we used to do um, uh, child dedications very frequently as a newborn would be born. And, and it's been a while now since we've done one of these. It's going to be a little bit embarrassing with seeing the size and ages of the children that we bring up to the front uh, on that opening Sunday when we open the new facility over there on Cross Park Drive. But we're going to do it, say. Um, at some point, I need to uh, <laughs> do a better job keeping track of of, uh, of this and maybe just automatically schedule uh, a, uh, an infant dedication every single, maybe every single Mother's Day or something, you know, just automatically saying whether we need to or not, every Mother's Day we're going to do this. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean if we stand up front and we're holding an infant and we're blessing, we're praying? What are we doing at that point? Is this... Um, is this valid? Okay, uh, there are uh, you know folks probably that that would object to such a thing because it seems a little bit too Catholic or what have you. No, we're not. We're not sprinkling anything. We're not baptizing any babies. We're not. There's not a mystical ritual that's somehow uh, investing any anything. What it is is a prayer request. And it's a dedication and it's a recognition that uh, the parents have priorities in the things of the Lord. These parents are bringing their children to Jesus Christ for his blessings. And that's what we want to recognize. And, uh, and so we, we um, imitate that or we um, commemorate this very event right here. We uh, commemorate this in our practice when, we, uh, when parents are delighted to bring their uh, children to, they can't bring them to Jesus, he's in heaven, so they bring them to the pastor and we stand in front of the congregation on a Sunday morning and we offer up prayers and we ask for the Father's blessings upon these children, see, that he would protect them, that he would um, bless them and, and shelter them until such point as they reach uh, gospel accountability, as they reach the age of accountability and give them a, a uh, willing heart to hear the, the gospel when they're old enough to understand it and bless the parents 
uh, much of it, we don't hold the parents in our arms, but we hold the babies in our arms while we pray for the parents to maintain their hunger, their appetite for teaching, their priority for spiritual things. It's all too easy in this uh, time of darkness for parents to just kind of lose heart or, or neglect their priorities or, or lose their appetite and their hunger. Saying we don't want to see that happen. We want to see that appetite stay solid until such time as these children um, are launched in their own generation. So this is what we're dealing with. We got point one. Children, even babies, were brought for hands-on prayer blessings. And the laying on of hands, the actual holding, the actual touching is significant. Um, maybe not so much in the church age, and yet we do have illustrations in the church age where the laying on of hands is significant for the identification principle. When you lay hands on a, on a candidate for ordination, for example, laying hands on a pastor, uh, laying hands is the mark of identification. And that's uh, the practice that happens here. Every gospel record, point two then, that was different. That slide thing up. Okay. Every, every gospel record demonstrates the volition of the parents. The children aren't choosing to come get blessed today. All right. The parents are bringing them. Every gospel record demonstrates the volition of the parents on behalf of their children in this activity. And this is an important concept because I think this helps. Uh, we understand it anyway, Old Testament, New Testament alike. We understand the accountability that parents have in the upbringing of their children. That God holds you accountable. You are to train up a child in the way he should go. And um, the application there. Here's the parents. They are being brought. It's either a passive tense verb uh, or it's um, the recognition that the children are the object of the verb to bring or to carry. Uh, they're not exercising their volition. The parents are the ones that are the volitional agents of this passage. Understand that. Children are too small. They're too young. They're not accountable. They don't understand the, the issues, especially if in Luke's record, of course, they're just infants. They're not even, uh, you know, mobile themselves. But the, uh, the recognition here is that the parents are the accountable parties. All right. The parents are the ones that have to make decisions that are pleasing to Jesus Christ, decisions that are compatible with biblical instruction, compatible with doctrine. And uh, children raised in such a home will be blessed because of that. They won't automatically get saved because of that. Are you clear? (laughs) But they will be blessed by virtue of being grounded in um, biblical uh, thinking, biblical actions, biblical patterns that can be. Uh, that can be ingrained even um, prior to conscious thought. See, that's that's how my upbringing was. It, try to for me to think back to a time, a pre-Christian time, is difficult, if not impossible, to do. Having been saved at the age of four, almost five, I guess that would have been, yeah, a few months shy of turning five. Um, you know, of course, there's a time before I was saved, but do I truly have a lot of memories on that time? No. Do I have memories of, do I have memories of a time that we weren't going to Sunday school? Do I have memories of a time that we weren't part of a church? No. And so, even before a child gets saved, you are you are grounding them in the pattern of this is how we live. This is this is our priority system. This is how we think. And it's a great value. And then the kid's not exercising this volition. The parents are exercising the volition. And every gospel record is, uh, is unanimous in that. But now two activities are taking place here, and they are in parallel. The parents were bringing, the parents were bringing their children. Prospero is your verb. Pharaoh is, uh, P-H-E-R-O is our term to carry or to bring. And then pros is towards. So they're bringing towards. They're bringing to a target. They're bringing to a destination or an object. Specifically, they're bringing them to Jesus Christ. Pros Pharaoh. It's got 47 New Testament uses. We're not going to look at any of them. Uh, fairly common vocabulary. Nothing exciting about the vocabulary except to note how they are used in tandem. And not to, not to get worked up over uh, different expressions if, in fact, they're biblical expressions. We shouldn't, we shouldn't react to them um, inappropriately. 
the parents were bringing their children. However, the gospel records are also, every single gospel record, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all unanimous in the fact that the children were coming. The children were coming. Every gospel record uses the verb to come, uses erkamai, and uses the children as the subject of the verb to come. Now, we, uh, this is where I, hopefully we can simply look at the plain text and relax about certain things that some people have a hard time relaxing about. All right. This activity is paralleled in every gospel record as the children coming. See. So, and it's just simply the nature of language. It's the nature of, of it doesn't matter if it's Greek, English, Hebrew, whatever. Um, it's a concept that if you're bringing somebody somewhere, are they not also coming? Okay. If I take my wife to lunch, she also is coming. All right. If you bring your children to church, are they not also coming to church? See, this is undeniable. And yet uh, folks will be resistant to certain aspects. And then this is where, again, I want to take it and put it into an evangelism realm. Even though this, that's not truly what this passage is not evangelistic, but let's understand it in an evangelistic way. Have you ever brought anybody to Christ? All right. When you did, did they not come to Christ? Yes, they did. When you every every person you brought to Christ has come to Christ. Okay. Although we also understand when you brought that person to Christ, was it really you doing it? That's right. What, what's required for someone to come to Christ? The Father who sent me must draw him. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, no one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And we understand that. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is relax a little bit about some language and not get um, resistant to certain concepts. Uh, because there are believers that, that, that shivers go through them it, in the whole term, come to Christ. Because they are very theological in their insistence that no one comes to Christ. Christ comes to them. Or they don't come to Christ. God saved them. See. Um, and, and they're very resistant. Even though, which, what I find interesting, there are places in Scripture that, that use language to describe it both ways. And there's nothing wrong with that. All right. I am in perfect agreement that you didn't come to Jesus in your own power, in your own sovereignty, in your own desire, because none does. There's none who seeks after God. No, not one. All right. But it does say no one can come unto me unless the father who sent me draws him. So assuming, of course, that the father is drawing, then yes, you came to Christ. And the scripture says you came to Christ. So we can relax, hopefully, about certain things. And, and whether it's, you know, bringing someone or coming or all these things, let's try to have a, um, a uh, common sense approach to how the language is used and, and not be so worked up over different matters. All right, so the children are coming. Keeping in mind, of course, they're coming not on their own volition, and in this sense, not even aware of what they're doing. All right. They're just babies. OK, so um, that's the application here anyway. Thirdly, we don't know why the disciples didn't like it. The disciples rebuked the parents for unstated reasons. And I'm not going to stay here till lunch and afterwards trying to make up excuses for why it was the disciples didn't want the kids around. Because the text doesn't tell us. Okay? And so, you know, I might have a couple of ideas, but and you might have a couple of ideas, but no one really knows because the text doesn't say. Unstated reasons. The disciples rebuked the parents for unstated reasons. And in the Matthew text, it's verse 13. In the Mark text, it's verse 13. In the Luke text, it's verse 15. It's the same verb in all three places, epitamao, number 2008. Strong's number 2008 has 29 New Testament uses to rebuke. And it's a, it's a fairly well-known term. It's an it's a important concept. Rebukes are necessary when appropriate. All right. Pastors are commanded to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. If uh, if you have a 
a child in need of reproof and you don't offer the reproof, then you're, uh, you're not faithful in your parental responsibilities. If you have a church member who needs a rebuke and you don't offer him the rebuke, what are you doing? Do you not love your brother? Um, and, and this really becomes a huge theme, of course, in the book of Proverbs. Uh, the fool despises correction, uh, but, the, but wisdom teaches you that, you know what? I need it. I need that correction. It's for my blessing. It's for my edification. Well, when the, repro- when the reproof or the rebuke, when the epitomao is applied in the wrong application, how does that happen? Why does that happen? What motivates that? Are, are these parents wrong for bringing these children here to Christ? Clearly they're not because Christ issues two imperatives saying permit them and stop hindering them. Don't ever do this again. Permit it now and forevermore. Never stop them. Okay, that's the twin. I'll get to the twin imperatives here shortly. Um, but why is it that they offer this rebuke? We need to, and the text doesn't tell us, so we're not going to waste our time speculating, but understand they were wrong for what they were doing. And so what does Jesus do? He rebukes them, (laughs) right? He rebukes them. He said, stop it. Suffer the children to come. That's the old King James, suffer. Let them come. Permit them to come. And do not stop. Don't ever do this again. So whatever their reasons were. It is uh, an interesting testimony, too, I will say. Um, the uh, we want to make sure if if God calls us to issue rebukes that first of all we're the right people to be doing it is it our realm is it our business is it our focus am I a busybody am I intruding where I'm not supposed to do I have the right motivation why am I rebuking um and I think you know because you can rebuke for the right reasons you can rebuke for the wrong reasons whether or not it's is needed. Uh, you can do so for the right reasons. You can do so for the wrong reasons. I think we need to evaluate. They're clearly, they have wrong motivation, whatever that might have been. Also, uh, was it appropriate? Were they the ones to be commanding these parents? Were they the ones that were to be chewing out these parents? I don't believe that they had the authority to do that. Anyway, that's something else that uh, needs to be evaluated. Fourth thing. Jesus became indignant towards his disciples. And these, uh, for more obvious reasons, all right? Jesus became indignant towards his disciples for more obvious reasons. If it's not clear what their attitude was, it gets very clear what his attitude is. All right? He's indignant. The vocabulary itself gives us much of the attitude behind um, his words here when he starts to give them these imperatives. So let's, uh, like I said, let's focus on Mark 10. And here is a uh, here is an application of righteous anger that is not carnality. Okay, and even the term indignation may help us if we want to separate in our mind the temper tantrum carnal anger from the uh, righteous indignation. Then this vocabulary may help us with that. Okay, and I think years and years ago it, it kind of became um, an adopted term. Probably, I don't know, maybe a Baptist term. I'm not sure, but it's at some point the expression "righteous indignation" uh, entered into church um, terminology. You know, the colonel used it. A lot of pastors use it. Righteous indignation. All right, it's not. You can't find that phrase in the Bible, but you find the concept, and this is what we're talking about. He's indignant. He's angry. He is um, offended. And we're going to see what motivates this, while we also recognize that he never sinned. This is not a sinning event for Jesus Christ. If he's carnal here, then he can't go to the cross. All right. So this is not sin, but it is anger. It is indignation. And this is... uh, Really, there's two of the seven issues we're going to study in this context. Two of them have subpoints and greater developments. Um, and this is the first of the two. What is this indignation about? First of all, the vocabulary. Ana, I'm not Ana, I'm sorry. Aga. A-ganakteo. A-G-A-N-A-K-T-E-O. 
has seven uses, plus there's a noun form that has a single use. And uh, it's worth looking at all eight of these. Aganakteo, A-G-A-N-A-K-T-E-O. Uh, it's number 23, one of the earliest of all the Strong's numbers. And uh, the noun, agonoctesis, is number 24, which is a hapax. It's only used this one time in the, in the Greek New Testament. The seven uses in the, um, of the verb are uh, all gospel record uses. And, oh, I also started a new notation device. So uh, figure out if, uh, if you can tell right off the bat how this works. Matthew 20, verse 24, Matthew 21, 15, Matthew 26, 8. Those are the three um, uses in Matthew. Mark 10, verses 14 and 41. Mark 14, 4. Luke 13, 14. So those are your seven uses. Now, in the... Uh, I probably made them too small and too faint. But I made tiny little superscript footnote markings. Um... And this is really for my benefit more than anything else. But this is going to help me to spot where the uh, the uses are, in fact, true gospel parallels. So I put a little subscript one next to Matthew twenty twenty four, and the equivalent verse is Mark ten forty one, and um, I put a superscript two next to Matthew twenty six eight, and the uh, Mark equivalent is Mark fourteen four. Okay. And it, it may be so subtle up on the screen that you're not seeing that out there 12 rows back. But um, if you can spot it that far back, you'll at least know what, uh, what that's about. And if you can't, don't worry about it. It's just my little uh, memory jog anyway um, to maybe minimize the, uh, the number of verses that we actually look at. All right. Do we need to illustrate? Should we... Um, the purpose for illustrations, of course, is to communicate. It's to reinforce what the scriptures are communicating. Uh, to fix in a, a Bible student's mind a concept that perhaps uh, isn't readily understood anyway. But who among us uh, does not know what it means to be irritated? <laughs> right? Who among us does not know what it means uh, for the uh, the anger, which is truly um, fashioned on the basis of resentment? And that's what we're going to see when we spell this out. So uh, I want to go through the New Testament uses, and then I also have a couple of uh, church father uses to look at today. That's what I was going to do. All right, let me uh, we'll come back to this. I was going to bring up uh, an example out of the church fathers, 1st Clement and 2nd Clement, and I forgot to. Let me start this up. I'll start the Logos Bible software. Okay, while that's running, let's turn to Matthew. Matthew um, 20. Start with Matthew chapter 20. Look, and, and these should be fairly well known to you. Matthew chapter 20. We've not yet reached this point in the life of Christ, so, um, but it's a fairly well-known story. In verse 24, the paragraph begins in verse 20, Matthew 20, 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may uh, sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? Now, notice he answered and he actually answered them. He wasn't answering her um, y'all don't know what y'all are asking. It's a rebuke to the disciples, not to the woman. And uh, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they said, oh, we are able. This is, this is James and John with their Peter moment, where Peter said, oh, I'll follow you even to death. And Jesus says, you know, before the rooster crows, uh, you know, before morning, you're, anyway, you know the story. This is their Peter moment. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to, for whom it has been prepared by my father. The actual reward seating assignment positions are paterological, not Christological, because it's a part of what the father 
is doing to bless his son. The father may want uh, more mature believers uh, to be seated in greater proximity to Jesus Christ than these two losers. All right. Never mind the fact that John was the beloved disciple, the one who reclined in his breast. Imagine that. And hearing this, the ten, who are the ten? Yeah, the, the others besides these two. Okay, remember it's the twelve, the twelve disciples, okay, including Judas Iscariot at this point. All right, the ten. That's all the rest. Everybody else, except for these two guys. They became indignant with the two brothers. They became indignant. This is the anger. And you'll notice it is an anger uh, fueled by a resentment that something that somebody has done is highly irritating. It might be irritating because they wish they would have thought of it first. Okay? Or it might be more irritating because uh, they're not cousins with Jesus because, you know, their mother is not uh, Mary's sister, say, like James and John's mother was really Jesus' aunt. They were cousins. And, and so it might be that Peter and Andrew and some of these other guys felt, wait a minute, we're, we're kind of getting, getting ripped off here. We want choice seating assignments, assignments too. All right, so this is the, uh, the reference there in Matthew. Now let me get this back up and running again if it works. All right. There we are. Now, so that's Matthew 20, verse 24. Next chapter over, Matthew 21, 15. The um, cleansing of the temple here and the triumphal entry. And it's interesting too, the... uh, uh, Not reading the whole thing here. Verse 14 says, the, uh, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. All right. Once again, children become the triggers for this. Okay. Just like with the disciples, uh, children are the triggers for the uh, being indignant. Okay. With Jesus, of course, his indignation was not sinful. With the Pharisees, we believe it is. With the disciples, it clearly was, because Christ rebuked them for it. Um, With the ten, indignant with the two, I I don't think that was a righteous indignation. I think the ten were just as carnal as the two were carnal when they were trying to uh, score the self-promotion there. So keep in mind that the, the verb itself doesn't tell us whether it's right anger or wrong anger. Okay? And this is, uh, you have to understand the heart motivation behind it. So, they're indignant. And so what does he do? He says to them, do you hear what these children are saying? Are you even listening to their words? They're singing Hosanna. They're singing, uh, save now, Lord. The Pharisees don't care about that. (laughs) Are you listening to what they're saying? Have you not read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you prepared praise for yourself. Have you not read? Oh, he uses this repeatedly at this stage of his ministry. Have you not read that in the beginning he made them male and female? Have you not read? You know, there's nothing more hurtful to these Pharisees than accusing them of sloppy scholarship, right? Or biblical ignorance. Of course they've read. But just like they haven't digested spiritually what they read, they're not even listening to what they're hearing right now. All right, so that's uh, Matthew twenty-one fifteen. Matthew 26, 8. Chapter 26 and verse 8. What happens in Matthew 26? It's the first thing you think of in Matthew 26. Yeah, the garden, the betrayal, the arrest and all this. Um, his death, his crucifixion comes in chapter 27. These... Um, Chapter titles are so powerful because they just help you think your way through. They help you meditate on on, uh, truth. So Matthew 26, it's his arrest, it's his uh, betrayal, it's the guard, it's his trials. The night before all this happens, he's in the home with um, 
Mary and Martha and uh, Simon the leper here. I think Lazarus was around. You've got uh, the different gospel records that give you details on this. And so Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. And a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? Again, it's an anger. What's motivating that anger? It's a resentment. Okay. There's different terms. There's orge. There's, uh, there's other verbs for anger that speak of um, passion or heat, uh, the, the, the frothing anger. Uh, this one is, is not uh, the heat frothing type of anger. This is one that really is motivated by, um, by a resentment, by something that's just not right, by not approving of what other people are doing. Not approving what other people are doing. You know, they're, they're bringing kids and, well, I just don't approve of what they're doing. Or these kids are singing Hosanna in the temple. I just don't approve of what they're doing. And here's this woman. She's pouring perfume on his head. Well, I just, I, that's not right. <laughs> and why do we, and this is a rhetorical question, and I'm not looking at anybody in the room when I say this, but why do we get so wrapped up about what other people are doing? You know? Are they right for what they're doing? Are they wrong for what they're doing? Or what, Who am I? I just need to make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay? If I have a delegated responsibility and authority, then within that realm, now I've got um, a ministry to supervise what other people are doing in terms of my wife, my children, my flock. Uh, I have a vested responsibility to shepherd what they're doing. But none of that's in play in any of these verses we're seeing here today. In these verses, we're just seeing folks that are getting irritated because of what other folks are doing. All right? And it's not, uh, it's not an issue of spiritual discernment. It's not an issue where um, a believer is convicted that, hey, you know, they're, they're violating Scripture. They're defiant to the will of God. They're, they're, uh, uh, I want to I see them on the right path. I want to see them return, return to righteousness. There's none of that. All, every, every one of these triggers is just simply a, a personality deal that says, I don't like what they're doing. And it's motivating the, the anger. Okay? And I find it interesting. The disciples were indignant as they rebuked these parents, but then Christ became indignant at their being indignant. Right? Because Christ is the one who becomes indignant in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 10 and starts chewing the, the disciples out, saying, stop hindering those kids from coming. So indignation can be carnal, but indignation can also be righteous. And we need to make sure that our, our heart is right or we don't, uh, we don't get lost in the weeds. All right. Why were they indignant? Because they, they just viewed it as a waste. As a waste. The disciples were indignant. When they saw this, they said, why this waste? This perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Some of them maybe had right reasons for thinking it was a waste. Judas, of course, had wrong reasons. He was pilfering from the, from the, the treasury anyway. Um, but why this waste? Okay. Hmm. You know, sometimes uh, wives get indignant because husbands are wasting money on stupid things, right? And then husbands get indignant because their wives are spending money on stupid things. And it's uh, quite interesting how stupid is in the eyes of the of the beholder. <laughs> what do you mean? I need that. Right? And it was a great price. Can you believe that? You know, I'd have, I'd have paid five times for that. And, uh, you know, she thought it was stupid uh, at the one-fifth price I thought was a bargain. And it goes the other direction also. You say, well, what a waste. All right. <laughs> no one knows anything I'm talking about today. It's all... All right, Mark chapter 10. Now, Mark chapter 10, we have a use in verse 14 before the use in verse 41 that parallels the episode we've already seen. But Mark chapter 10 and verse 14. Oh, that's our verse today. Never mind. Um, and then verse 41 is parallel to what we already saw in uh, Matthew 20. We also have a use in Mark 14, 4. That's a parallel to what we just looked at there in 
with the alabaster perfume in uh, Matthew 26. The last one then that we can look at is Luke 13, 14. Luke 13, 14. I'm already liking my experiment this morning because uh, those little marks on the screen help me from the redundancy of uh, looking at a parallel text. All right, Luke 13, 14. He was teaching on one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent double, could not straighten up at all. The demonic affliction had her bent over with a physical manifestation of a spiritual affliction. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. Doesn't leave it with her volition, doesn't ask if she wants to be cured, doesn't ask anything, just sovereignly releases her. And he laid his hands on her. Immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Here we see it again. What's the motivation? It's not approving of something that somebody else is doing. Not approving. As if we're the authority for giving authorization for what other people want to do. He began saying to the crowd in response, and you notice he's too chicken to talk to Jesus, so he starts talking to the crowd here. There are six days in which work should be done. Come during one of them and get healed. You know, don't, just don't come here on the Sabbath day. And Christ calls them hypocrites. We taught this episode already. All right, so every single one of these uses, we find that it comes with a disapproval for what other people are doing. The disciples disapproved of what the parents were doing, bringing the kids in. Jesus disapproved in what the disciples were doing, rebuking the parents. Okay? So, they were indignant. He was indignant. They were carnal in theirs. He, uh, we know, was not. And that's something we want to be clear on. All right. Those are all the verbal uses. The one noun, uh, indignation, comes in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 11. So, we'll have this coming up here in... Uh, uh, next year sometime. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Should be the first part of next year. If we do 4, 5, and 6 this year, then uh, 7, 8, and 9 will be next year. Rapture pending, of course. I hope we're not here that long. Second Corinthians chapter 7. And, and take note. Um, as he talks about the fact that he caused them sorrow, and um, he was thankful when he finally, uh, when he finally was reunited with Titus. He thought Titus was probably dead, and then uh, he, God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Do you see that in verse six? God who comforts the depressed. You know. The Bible has quite a bit to say about mental illness or uh, depression, about uh, soul afflictions and all of that. Sometimes when I communicate my uh, convictions regarding Freudian psychotherapy, um, folks uh, don't necessarily take it the best of ways, and they they think I'm hostile to anything related to mental illness. They, well, you just don't believe mental illness exists. I believe it exists, but I believe it's a spiritual function as described in the Bible. I don't believe it's a medical function that the unbelievers are going to uh, pharmacologically produce, uh, produce uh, cures for. All right. Spiritual here. God comforts the depressed. Look at that. Wow. And he doesn't charge $130 an hour plus... Uh, Prescription fees. Comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. That takes you all the way back to chapter 1 where we receive comfort, we extend comfort, and we're able to comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted from God. He reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. Uh, this, by the way, when are we going to do this verse? This is coming up too. Oh, longing. This is going to come up tonight when we deal with the... Um, the resurrection body, when we deal with, uh, in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with uh, the building we have in heaven. So there's legitimate longing, legitimate mourning, legitimate zeal 
so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. You know, there's a lot of things you do in ministry. You don't like doing it, but you do it because you know you have to. For I see that the letter caused sorrow, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. See, the purpose of the rebuke is designed to provoke repentance. It's designed to slap somebody upside the head. It's designed to just say, what are you doing? Open your eyes. Quit being so stupid. Producing a repentance without regret. You were brought sorrowful to the point of repentance. You were made sorrowful according to the will of God. See, God comforts the depressed, but guess what? Some sorrow, He designed it. <laughs> and it's not His will for you to, to uh, drug yourself up and be happy about everything. Some things you should not be happy about. There's a time to laugh and a time to weep. And uh, God's sorrow can be in the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. You're better off being sorrowful here in time and not forsaking reward for all eternity. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, all that leads up to this, behold, what earnestness in this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. All of this speaks to a passion for Christianity that uh, is described in positive terms. Positive terms with the right doctrinal approach behind it. Understand that. Hmm. This is where uh, I think uh, the Pentecostals do better than we do. Maybe they don't have the doctrine and they don't know why. But they've got an eagerness. They've got a zeal. Sometimes we're just, you know, dead fish or something. I don't know what we are with. What are we doing in our, in our faith? What are we doing? Do we have a zeal? What earnestness for this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In other words, angry without sin. So these are the terms. And uh, Christ was the positive example. And unbelievably enough, Corinth is the positive example of all the uh, uses that we see. I think in the rest of them I pretty well lock in on the carnal applications. Indignation, in case you haven't already gleaned this from the uh, New Testament text, it is an anger prompted by resentment. And I would expand upon that. Resentment uh, because of a disapproval over what other people are doing. A disapproval over what other people are doing. And the church fathers used it in exactly the same way. First Clement, Second Clement, the early Christian writings used the same terms in the same exact way. Helps us to gain, to gain a uh, recognition of how the term is used. We don't cite them as biblical authority, though. The church fathers are not scripture, not God-breathed, not inspired. But it is contemporary testimony to how the uh, folks who received these writings, how they understood the terms to mean how they understood the terms were to be employed, how they uh, were to be used. And so it's great for comparative vocabulary study. First Clement, by the way, um, if you're not familiar with church fathers or, or uh, apocryphal writings or so forth, we don't consider it apocrypha because they they're not making claims to be scriptures, but the writings of the church fathers, the apostolic fathers, uh, Clement is likely older than Revelation. Canon was not yet closed canon is still open while Clement, uh, writing from Rome, is writing to the Corinthian believers there about, about their faith, about uh, their, the Christian practice. So again, it's not Bible. We don't, breathe, we don't assume that it's God-breathed and inspired, but it is a wonderful testimony to how the early church was living what the apostles were writing in Scripture and the fact that he was writing to the same Corinthian believers that Paul wrote to in uh, 1 Corinthians is, uh, is helpful. The fact that Paul wrote to the Romans from Corinth is helpful. We understand that a lot of the correspondence back and forth between Rome and Corinth 
uh, is not only Bible, but also the writings of the church fathers. So let me go here then and just bring these up. First Clement 56, 2. He says, therefore, let us also intercede for those who are involved in some transgression. He says, you know what? It's pretty good if a local church prays together. He says, you know, it's a real great idea if brothers and sisters can sit down in prayer and intercede. For those who are involved in some transgression, well, guess what? They're out there in the weeds and they're not coming to prayer meetings. So what are we going to do? How about if we pray for them? That forbearance and humility may be given them so that they may submit, not to us, but to the will of God. When we pray for a, a loved one out there in spiritual wilderness and they repent, that's not because we did it. They're not coming to us. For in this way, the merciful remembrance of them in the presence of God and the saints will be fruitful and perfect for them. Let us accept correction, which no one ought to resent, dear friends. Now that's our term indignation. No one ought to agana. Uh, let us accept correction which no one ought to grow indignant over you might be you might grow indignant someone's correcting you and so you might express your disapproval about what somebody else is doing namely correcting you <laughs> and so i don't approve of you correcting me and so i'm going to resent that i'm going to be indignant over that and you see, this is the attitude in the disciples and the attitude in Christ. The reproof which we give one to another is good and exceedingly useful for it unites us with the will of God. And goes on to quote scripture and quotes uh, Hebrews. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he punishes every son whom he accepts. And, and you have the, uh, the citation there. So again, this isn't Bible, but this is an early church father writing with scripture in an application. And so we see it. All right, Second Clement 19.2. Moreover, let us not be displeased or indignant. Back up there. Therefore, brothers and sisters, following the God of truth, I am reading you an exhortation to pay attention to what is written in order that you may save both yourselves and your reader. In other words, be serious in your Bible study. And if you're a teacher, you better be doubly serious in your Bible study. As compensation, I ask that you repent with your whole heart, thereby giving salvation and life to yourselves. For by doing this, we will set a goal for all the young people who desire to devote themselves to piety and, and the goodness of God. Moreover, let us not be displeased or indignant, unwise as we are, when someone admonishes us and tries to turn us away from unrighteousness to righteousness. For there are times when we do evil things without realizing it because of the double-mindedness and faithlessness that exists within us and our understanding is darkened by empty desires. Of course, that's a New Testament quote as well. Understanding is darkened. So in both of these, let us not be displeased or indignant. What's the context? Somebody's doing something we don't approve of. Namely, correcting us. Again, same as it had it in, uh, in First Clement. All right, so there's the use there. In the case of our Lord, we understand that His indignation is an anger without sin. In the case of our Lord, we understand His indignation to be an anger without sin. And I think the context in 2 Corinthians seven eleven likewise shows that the zeal and the indignation and the uh, passion there was a positive, not a carnal uh, situation. Ephesians 4.26 we quote quite a bit because that's the New Testament passage. But it does have an Old Testament background. And that comes out of Psalm 4.4. Maybe that's not as known to you or me or anyone. Psalm 4.4. Where it says, Tremble. There's an anger application in that. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Tremble and do not sin. You know, are there things that irritate you? You bet. Just don't let it plunge you into carnality. 
Are you angry over things happening in government? Are you angry over taxes? Are you angry over whatever? Does it anger you that our government refers to Jerusalem as Al-Quds? That angers me. The president's uh, counterterrorism advisor gets in front of a bunch of Muslims and talks about how his favorite city in all the Middle East is Al-Quds. And that's the Islamic name for Jerusalem. That's what they want to have as their capital for the nation, the, the terrorist nation of Palestine. That's their goal. Once they execute all the Jews and shove Israel into the sea, Al-Quds will be their capital. And our president's counterterrorism advisor, Brennan is his name, he, uh, he makes this speech and he doesn't call it Jerusalem. He caught himself. He called it Al-Quds and then he followed it up with a real quick Jerusalem after that. But he called it Al-Quds. Does that anger me? You bet it angers me. Uh, but I don't want to get carnal. I don't want to forfeit eternal rewards for the sake of some political weenie that doesn't deserve it, right? Tremble and do not sin. And how do you do that? So that's easier said than done. Well, the how-to is right here. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Faith, rest it. Just cycle the doctrine. Saturate your soul with truth. Remind yourself on your bed, in your final conscious thoughts before you're drifting off into sleep, that Jesus Christ controls history. Remind yourself that our Father has a plan. And day by day, from Alpha to Omega, He's glorifying Jesus Christ. Meditate on your bed and be still. Of course, Ephesians 4.26, Be angry yet, do not sin. It goes on to say, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And I think this is the... Uh, a lot of times we don't understand, well, what does that mean? It means you apply Psalm 4.4. It means you meditate on your bed the things of the Word of God. You, revi- you remind yourself of how faithful God is so that anger is is dampened before you drift off to sleep. You don't want to dream over your anger. And I think that the uh, the exact basis for this is uh, Psalm 4.4. Be angry and yet without sin. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. And I think if you continue to dwell on the anger without cycling the doctrine, all you're doing is just laying it out there. You're feeding the, uh, the snare so the adversary can just get you. Don't do that. You're not commanded to dwell on what causes your indignation. You're commanded to dwell on whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent. If there's any excellence, you know, Philippians 4.8, which I misquote every time I try. <laughs> all right. I have... Uh, it's a form of dyslexia that's not widely been reported on. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you about it someday. All right. But it has to do with Bible verses that have long lists of stuff. And any Bible verse that has a long list of stuff, I can usually get two or three items into that long list of stuff, and then I start swapping them around and forgetting them and dropping and adding a couple extra ones in there and things like that. So it's not, uh, it's not intentionally changing Scripture. Um, we are out of time. We'll have to come back to this. The rest of those verses on the screen, by the way, um, don't relate to anger at all. They do relate to our Savior's sinlessness. And so I want to give a, a full spectrum of these uh, so that, because uh, folks were asking, well, where in the, you know, is there a verse in the Bible that you know, talks about how Jesus never sinned? Yes, there's multiple verses in the Bible that talk about how Jesus never sinned. And I give you every single one I can find here on this slide. Second Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 7.26, 1 Peter 2.22, 1 John 3.5, and there are more. All right, this is just a New Testament sampling. Uh, Isaiah 53, you know, is the, the sinless and spotless lamb and plenty of other examples. But I am out of time, so we'll come back uh, next week and uh, pick up on that. And then we have the twin imperative where he says, permit them and do not hinder them. And uh, we'll have to tackle both of those and understand what the hindrances are. What hindrances do we put in people's ways? And um, make sure that we're not hindrances to brothers and sisters that are pursuing the will of God for their lives. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Bible study. Thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, um, 
I pray that we would learn what the righteous indignation is, Father, because we're expected to have the attitude in us, which is also in Christ Jesus. And there are things we know, Father, that anger you. And if we don't have that attitude, then then we need to understand why. So, Father, open our eyes to your truth. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.